Father, I'm reminded even as we pray tonight, reminded, Lord, that um, it was Paul who wrote that he wanted men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. And it's refreshing, Father, for me to sit and watch and see our guys are the ones praying long tonight. And I just pray, Father, that you will bring blessing, that you will hear all the prayers prayed here this evening. And Father, you will call us forward and draw out our prayer and draw out our faith. As we thank you so much for loving us and for being present here even tonight. Father, tonight as we enter into the study of of Esther, I pray your blessing on this time. pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, our spirits, Father, to hear in the deepest places what you have to teach us. We thank You for this great book, and we thank You, Lord, for the blessing that we have of opening up Your Word and hearing from You. So, Holy Spirit, I pray You would teach us tonight, and be with us. Lead us through this in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther chapter 7. Chapter 7 for our study tonight. I want to begin this evening with a correction. Uh, We are in the pursuit of truth at the Bridge Fellowship. And uh, I got an email. I, I won't tell her who because I really don't want to embarrass Rachel Daly. <laughs> but I got an email this last week after Wednesday night saying, Hey, I, I don't know about the Battle of Thermopolis, but the Battle of Thermopylae, the Persians versus the Greeks, the Persians actually won that battle. And I, if you recall last week, we talked about that happening, that, that battle taking place. Xerxes sending his men off to fight. Um, and I... So I went back and I looked at my sources, and and she's partially true. She's partially correct. And I just wanted to correct it all for you. In the Battle of Thermopylae, which was between the Persians coming on and trying to invade, and the Athenians, I hope you didn't, but some of you may have seen the movie 300. That is what that movie is about. It's kind of a bloodbath as far as I've heard. I haven't seen it myself. But the whole idea was that 300 Spartans were joined by 700 thieves and they went up against to, de- to defend a pass specifically and to defend against the invading Persian army of hundreds of thousands if not millions of invaders. And they held them off and ultimately they lost. The, the Greeks did lose to the Persians but at incredible cost to the Persians. Pretty much from the Battle of Thermopylae on which was kind of the Alamo of Europe. It's, it's still to this day talked about as the greatest battle in the history of Europe. It's their Alamo. It's the rally cry of a people defending their right to, to exist and defending their land. And yes, the Greeks did lose. However, it was at great expense to Persia. And from that point forward, Persia begins a downward slide in history. So, But I wanted to correct that. I wanted to honor Rachel. And I appreciate that. Then uh, her sister Margaret Rose sent me an email <laughs> questioning me on something on, on, that I said on Sunday. And so I just want to say to you all, let's not get crazy. Okay? <laughs> no, I always appreciate that. And I appreciate that you are looking into... I, I do my best to check every source. And sometimes it's not easy to... There's so much. Um, but thank you girls for being sharp and always... Always be on top of it that we can, uh, we want to teach truth. That's the whole point. So, tonight we pick up right where we left off. You may recall we came down to the wire last week, the drumbeat of drama as we came down to the end of chapter 6 and about in, into chapter 7. The truth is about to be revealed. It's, it's, it's a powerful drama, this, this story of Esther and her life, at least this, this aspect of her life, this time in her life. It's the height of the drama. 
Now you may recall, let me just back up a little bit, that it's now the day of Esther's second feast. The second banquet that she has invited Xerxes, the king, Ahasuerus, she's invited him and Haman to come to this feast. Just the three of them, a special banquet that she prepares for them. She prepared the first one. They came and ate, and Haman went home. And you may recall, he was so proud of himself. Went home and just boasting to his wife and his friends of all his riches and boasting about his his children, how many boys he had out there, ten of them to be precise. And he's talking about how Esther, Esther invited him and him alone to join her and the king and this feast. So he's obviously an important person, and yet, do you recall, he couldn't even enjoy it because of that stinking little Jew Mordecai who's just bugged him. Everybody else honors Haman, not Mordecai, and it drove him nuts. Mordecai, whose name means little man, and, and Haman, whose name means Mr. Magnificent, and yet Mr. Magnificent is the little man in the story. Well, at the same time, in the evening here, between these two banquets, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, goes home. He's in the palace and he's having trouble sleeping. And so he does what actually is a good prescription for any of us who, who are having trouble sleeping. He calls for the books of history to be read. <laughs> they bring in the chronicles of the king, the chronicles of Persia. They begin to read to him and lo and behold, coincidentally, well, of course, you know what the rabbis say, Coincidence is not a kosher word. So they begin reading from the very section of history that tells about Mordecai and his loyalty to the king and how it was Mordecai who averted an assassination attempt against the king. And it's wonderful, the hand of providence, God making sure that Xerxes heard that. So Xerxes responds, he says, hey, have we done anything for this Mordecai, for for his loyalty? Well, no, uh, your highness, we haven't done anything. Well, we, we need to honor him. Who, who's in the court? Just at that moment, Haman is walking into the court. It's now morning. And they say, well, Haman's here. And he says, oh, Haman, come here. Haman, second in authority to the king, comes up to the king, full of himself, a little confused about this Mordecai, wanting to have him hung. And by the way, at that moment, he's having gallows built on which to hang Haman. But he comes into the king... And Mordecai, did I say Haman? I meant more, I'm rolling here, so just, just hang with me. What did I say? Let's not get crazy, okay? Thanks, yeah, shoot me an email. Yeah, so Haman is having gallows built to hang Mordecai at that moment. Haman comes before the king, full of himself, and the king says, hey, what should we do to honor the man that the king desires to honor the most? And you know what happened? Haman said, oh, I was thinking, it must be me he's talking about. And so he says, oh, well, give him the king's robe and let him ride on the king's horse and take him in a procession of honor through the streets. And the king goes, come on, that's great. What a great advice. Okay, I'd like you to do that for Mordecai. Haman cannot believe his ears and Haman now has to lead Mordecai in glorious and grand procession around the courtyard. Well, we pick up right at that point. Right at that point, verse 12 of chapter 6, Then Mordecai, he returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. You may recall it was just in chapter 4 that all the Jews of the kingdom were mourning, covering their heads, fasting in sackcloth and with ashes. Now it's starting to come back. Now it's coming around. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai... Before, you, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. You see, Persians were superstitious people. 
They believed in omens and signs and fate. And they're seeing this happen. The honoring of Mordecai by the king at the very moment that Haman is is having the gallows built and they say, "Uh uh-oh, this is not a good omen. This does not look good for you. Verse 14 says, While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Verse 1. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. Now he had offered that at the first banquet. But Esther wasn't ready. Probably scared to death. Wasn't sure how could she do this. She needed a little more time. Well, honestly, God needed a little more time. He needed to keep you know, Xerxes awake during the night. He needed all that had happened to happen. And so, this second banquet, the same request is offered. The king says, whatever you want. Esther replied, verse 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition, and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we have only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do this? And by the way, you know that's, that's that verse right there where the acrostic in the Hebrew spells out the name I am. The name that God gives Moses at the burning bush. It's right there in verse 5. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the earlier teaching. We talked about that before. Verse 6, Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman! Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. This is an absolute shocker. It's an astounding revelation. For neither man knew at this point that Esther was a Jewess. Verse 7. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. He knew he was in big trouble. Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, <laughs> you know, pleading for his life, but this was not a good move. He's not even thinking straight. And we're told, then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. That is, the servant standing by. They now come rushing in with a sheet or a covering of some kind, and they cover his face and they wrap him up, and they now have him in custody. They covered his face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. This Ahasuerus is not a respecter of life. This is his second in command. Okay, This is his supposedly most highly trusted official, and without a blink of an eye, he says, hang him on these same gallows. So, verse 10, they hanged him on on the gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Now don't forget, in the middle of this moment of drama and intrigue, 
The hand that turns the wheels of justice is the hand of the Lord. This is God at work doing a magnificent thing. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Long before the Lord said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Just today, interesting, Persia, uh, that is Iran, test-fired an upgraded version of its newest and longest-range missile, the Sajil-2. Sajil means baked clay. It, it, it literally is after a story found in the Quran about an invading army attacking Mecca. And so what they, what they did was they prayed, apparently, and, and Allah sent pigeons to grab baked clay stones and pelt the coming army. Interesting story. But that's what they're calling this missile. This upgraded version It is their newest, longest-range missile. It now has capability of reaching well inside Israel's borders. Today, literally this morning, this missile went off. And the Iranians are declaring it to be missile shield proof. And so the intrigue and the play back between Israel and Iran and the Middle East is, is ratcheting up. Again, keep your eyes on that part of the world. But I believe we have a verse that speaks to this very missile. Isaiah 54 verse 17 tells us, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Haman is on the wrong side of Israel. Iran, Ahmadinejad is on the wrong side of Israel. My friends, you do not want to be on the wrong side of Israel. What happens? Haman gets hung up in the very gallows that he prepares for Mordecai the Jew. He is killed in that same place. And what we see here actually is a, an important spiritual law that recurs again and again in Scripture and in history. Galatians 6-7 tells us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now what's great about this verse is you can test this out at home. Here's how you do it. Go to Costco. Pick up a nice, juicy New York steak. Take it home this evening and plant it in your garden. And then wait until the warmest day of summer, you know, when the sun's really coming down and it's warm and almost a bit humid, and go dig up that tasty steak. And what you will find is a corrupt, maggot-filled piece of meat. A graphic picture of exactly what Paul is talking about. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, however, that's a different thing. From the Spirit, we reap eternal life. The reality is whatever we plant in the flesh, whatever sin we commit, every immoral and ungodly act, my friends, it will crop up in corruption. And that's unnerving to me. I don't know if it is to you too, but there are a lot of things that I sowed in the flesh over my years that I don't want to see again. They say what goes around comes around. I don't want it to come around. I have memory still, I'm sure you do too, of things that we have done in the past that we would just as soon let lie, that we don't want to see again. We don't want it to come back around. Is there any way to avoid this? Well, look again at verse 10. 
They hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. What does it take to subside the anger of the king? The cursed man must be hanged. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Amazing. Here in the middle of the book of Esther, in fact at the apex, at the moment of greatest drama, as Haman is being hanged, what we have here, my friends, is a picture, a portrait of the hanging of Jesus Christ on the tree. Wait a minute though. Haman is evil. Haman is wicked. Haman deserved to die. Jesus didn't deserve to die, but I'm telling you, when He hung on the cross, all the evil and sin and wickedness of the world was on Him. He took it all. It took a man dying on the tree, cursed as Jesus was, for all of that stuff that we have sowed in the past of our lives, all of that corruption, for it to be assuaged for the king's anger to subside, for it to be taken away. Well, I don't like the idea that you're calling Jesus sinful on the cross. Well, I didn't. You Bible students, you know the verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What happened to Haman? Well, Jesus did that. He took our sin. He took the curse. He went to the gallows, that is, the cross of Calvary, to appease the anger of the great King. Romans 3.24 tells us we have been justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Amen. Chapter 8, verse 1. Well, the story continues. It's not over yet. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And the king took off, watch this, he took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Do you see what just happened? Little man now replaces Mr. Magnificent. Mordecai has just stepped into the new role. He is now second in command over all of Persia. In the same way that Joseph was second in command over all of Egypt. In the same way that Daniel was elevated, lifted up there in Persia himself. Now we have Mordecai who is second in command. And that will become even more clear momentarily. But I think it's wonderful to see how God maintains a providential balance. Anytime we think that that politically speaking or physically speaking, intellectually speaking, morally speaking in our world, anytime we see things getting out of balance, as often is the case, anytime you're watching the news and you say, how bad can it get? Would you remember the hand of providence is working? As we've said before, the wheels of justice, God's justice, turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. God is at work. God is going to restore the balance. He is going to bring about righteousness. Oh, it may not even be in a lifetime. It may not even be something that that we ourselves see. And yet, so often it is. 
We see how God does this. That, now that's, that's a replacement theology I can buy. Replacing the bad with the good. Replacing the evil who has now been taken out with the righteous who is Mordecai. What I'm saying here basically is when things get out of whack, trust the Lord. Just trust the Lord. He will restore. He has this inimitable way of turning the tables and setting things right again. But, we cannot say all is well, not just yet. There is still a big problem. For you see, though Haman is dead, the decree is still in play. The order to annihilate, to kill all the Jews on that 13th day of the month of Adar, that is still in effect. And it cannot be revoked. Medo-Persia was ruled by what could be called a constitutional monarchy. In other words, the, the king was all-powerful and did have, you know, he was set up as the ultimate authority of the monarch. However, when he signed a law into being, he himself could not revoke it. Once that signet ring went into the hot wax and the law was sealed, that was it. You don't go back on it. You may recall the, the story in Daniel chapter 6. King Darius, who actually was favorable toward Daniel, loved Daniel, respected Daniel. He was duped by his advisors into setting this law that everybody should only bow down and pay homage to him, to the king. Well, that felt kind of good for Darius. All right, I can, I can sign off on that. Not realizing that they were setting Daniel up. And you recall the story when Daniel is thrown down into the, into the lion's den. Darius, he can't change the law. He doesn't want to do it. He's not happy about it. He's the first one down to the den in the morning calling down, Daniel, are you all right? Everything's good. I'm all right, just hanging out with Leo. And he wasn't lying. He was okay. Sorry. Verse 3. Back to the story. So this is an irrevocable decree. The Jews are going to, must be annihilated. There's nothing you can do to stop this. The problem remains even though Haman has been taken out. Verse 3. And by the way, by the way, let me just say one other thing here. Sin remains even when the temptation is taken out. Sin in our lives, which Haman is a picture of the flesh in this story. He is a picture of sin. The sin nature remains. We may have a temptation removed, but that sin nature is still lurking about. Okay? Keep that in mind. Verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. She comes before him again without permission. He really loves her. All right. I'm not going to chop your head off today. So Esther arose and stood before the king. She said, verse 5, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people? And how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So, King Ahasuerus said to the queen, to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged on the gallows because he, he had stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now, you write to the Jews, as you see fit, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I can't go back on the decree. 
I can't revoke it. It's out there now. But here's my signet ring. Mordecai, you're second in command. Do with it as you will. It's out of my hands. Okay, he's not saying this because he really cares. I mean, I think he cares for Esther, but still, you know, it's just one group of people. But, but you guys, you have the authority. Do what you must do. Write whatever you will, but you cannot revoke this law. Well, if a decree signed by the king's signet ring cannot be revoked, what hope is there for the Jews in Persia? Read on. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, which again includes Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem would be part of that. To every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. He wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses riding on steeds sired by the royal stud. Verse 11. In them, the king granted, I love this, the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble and defend their lives. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoil. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as, as law in each and every province, was published to all the peoples, so that the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, hastened to and impelled by the king's command, went out riding on the royal steeds, and the decree was given out at the citadel in Susa. It's absolutely brilliant. You cannot revoke the old law, but you can write a new law. Do you get where we're going with this? You can't revoke the old law. You can't take it out. The law is, well, the law of the Lord is perfect and is irrevocable. You can't take it away. You cannot remove it. What a picture. The first law condemns. The second law defends. The first law says you have no choice but to die. The second law says you have now a way to stand up and defend yourself. The Jews throughout Persia are basically given legal right to self-defense. Ahasuerus, Xerxes, will not stop them from defending themselves. On this particular day, the same day of Haman's ordinance, his decree, the first law. What an amazing picture is this. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's the first law. Now the law of the Lord is perfect, but the problem with the law of the Lord is none of us can keep it. And so we are decreed in the first law, like the Jews of Persia, we're decreed death. So the Lord brings a new law. The second covenant, the new covenant. It's been signed, it's been sealed, it's been delivered. Romans 6.23 continues, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect. We are not. But we are not saved by keeping the first law. We are saved by the covenant of the second law. Hebrews 9.15 says he's a mediator of a new covenant. So that since death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. First law condemns. The second law defends. Verse 15 going on. 
Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, watch this, in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Note this about Mordecai. It's fascinating and important. He's sent out wearing a robe of blue. Now in our studies back in Exodus 25, 26, where we looked at all of the, 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 the hangings and, and the, the coverings of the Ark of the Covenant and, and the, the sheets that went around, not sheets, but the, the woven patterns and materials that went all the way around the tabernacle, we talked about what those colors meant and the pictures that God provided in the tabernacle. The color of blue is the color of heaven. It's a heavenly color. He was also wearing robes not only of blue, but of white, the color of purity or righteousness. He's wearing a garment of fine linen. Who else wears fine linen in the Scriptures? The saints do. Revelation 19. The church, the fine linen, is the righteous acts of the saints. And now Mordecai is wearing fine linen. Picture of the church. And he's wearing purple, the color of royalty. He's wearing a gold crown that signifies he is sent out with the authority of the king who sent him. What are you saying, Rick? Simply this. We have talked about over the last three books, the post-exilic books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We have talked about pictures of the Holy Spirit in each book. Ezra, the helper, his name meaning helper, is a picture of the Spirit's work in our spirit. Nehemiah, the the counselor, a pig or comforter, the Spirit's work on our souls as Nehemiah rebuilt that wall around Jerusalem, hemming us in behind and before. And here in the book of Esther, Mordecai. Mordecai is the picture of the Holy Spirit. He comes dressed in blue, the color of heaven, and white, righteousness, and linen, the connection to the church, and purple, royalty, crowned with gold, sent out from the presence of the king, but there's more to it than that. If it was just the outfit he was wearing, I might leave it alone and not even bring it up. But yet, understand this, and I've waited to tell you this with a lot of excitement. His name doesn't just mean little man. The name Mordecai in the Hebrew also means grieved by oppression. One who is grieved by oppression. Mordecai in the story, he grieves. He hurts for his people who are oppressed. What does the Holy Spirit do? He grieves for us. He grieves for those oppressed. Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. We know He groans for us. When we can't find the words, Romans 8.26 The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We know the Holy Spirit of God is not a spirit of oppression. The exact opposite. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17 And we see in this man Mordecai, we see one who grieves for the bitter oppression of his people, who now seeks their liberty and their physical rescue, and he is now sent out by the king. Oh, read on, it just gets better. Verse 16. The Jews there, for the Jews there, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. These things produced by the Holy Spirit. Again, at work in our lives, the Spirit sent forth from the king. Light. Light, illumination is what we receive from the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. He lifts the veil. 
in the Spirit of God, we now have illumination. We can see what we could not see before. Understand what we couldn't understand before. There is a whole new awareness for a person walking in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So He brings light, illumination. Secondly, He gives us gladness and joy. Well, the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Galatians 5.22 Isaiah 61 verse 3 tells us Jesus would come to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The oil of gladness, an indication of what the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life will accomplish. Gladness. Joy. I'm sorry, you you, you simply cannot be a somber, dour Christian. If you have the Spirit of God, you can't walk around grousing at everything. If you do, i got to ask, do you really know the Spirit? Do you really have the Spirit of the Lord living within you? Because, hey, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. He is the oil of gladness. And I love this. It tells us that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. We move from the sackcloth-wearing, mourning, sorrowful, sinful people into the place now of honor, being the children of God. And the Spirit accomplishes this. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Suddenly, all of that stuff in our past, all of that history, all the things that would bow the head and bend the back in sorrow and mourning, it's gone. The Spirit tells you, reminds you, reminds me daily, you're a child of God. You are a child of God. You are sons, you're daughters of the King. Rejoice, be glad. Be illuminated. Verse 17 going on, In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews and a feast and a holiday. That word holiday literally is a good day. And I really like the way that sounds. They just had a good day. You know, when this decree came out, this second decree, the Jews everywhere just went, Now that's a good day. This is good. They're joyful. They're excited. And it's interesting to me because if you called chapter 8 in the book of Esther anything, you could call it the chapter of hope. Because suddenly, where there was no hope, suddenly there's hope. Suddenly, where there was nothing but desolation and oppressive despair, now there is overwhelming hopefulness. But Rick, they're not really out of the woods yet, are they? I mean, the, the first decree still stands. That means anyone who's in Persia and has it in for the Jews, still has the first decree, and can still go after the Jews, and can still fight to try to annihilate them. And that's absolutely true. So why is there so much rejoicing among the Jews? They haven't won any battles yet. They've just been given the right to fight. Why are they rejoicing now? Gang, I think you know the answer. There's hope even in the battle. There is hope in the battle. This is so key to the Christian life. The secret for you and for me of living lives of joyful celebration, the kind of celebration we're going to read about in chapter 9, celebration of festival and and rejoicing, rather than living in the desolation of chapter 4, is residing for now in chapter 8. Are you following me? Chapter 4 is the chapter of mourning, sorrow, sackcloth, and ashes. 
Chapter 9 is the celebration of their salvation once it comes about. But before that comes, there's chapter 8, which is the chapter of hope. The people are rejoicing, not because there's a resolution to the whole thing. They're rejoicing because they've got hope. And that's why we rejoice, because hope does not disappoint. That's the secret of joy and peace and confidence in the Lord, is hope. It doesn't matter what happens in this life, you have hope. A living hope, Peter called it. And Paul wrote this wonderful verse, Romans 15, 13. In fact, in this verse, he pins a brand new name for God in the New Testament. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. (coughs) And so, excuse me, and so we, like the Jewish people, have joy and peace and hope in the Spirit through faith, even before the final battle. Even before all is accomplished. That's the secret. Far, far too many Christians have heard the second decree. They've heard the new law, the new covenant of grace. But they're still wallowing in despair. They still reside in that chapter 4, rather than in the hope chapter. The outcome... It just doesn't affect them. Watch this though. Look at verse 17. It continues on. It's amazing because it's more than just us that are impacted. It tells us many among the peoples of the land became Jews. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Now dread's probably a good translation. There were probably those who were now afraid of the Jews because of this immediate turnabout. But the word dread there is the same word that's translated fear or awe in other places. The awe of the Jews. And people in droves apparently there in Persia were becoming Jewish. You know? Celebrating Hanukkah and making potato pancakes and spinning the dreidel. They all wanted to be part. (laughs) So much more. Changing their lives. Becoming proselyte Jews. Converting to Judaism. Why? Because they're looking at this people. Some are afraid. Some are just in awe. Look at the hope. Tell you what, these Jews are not acting like a people who are going to be annihilated. They're acting like a people who know how to stand. They're acting like a people who have already won the battle. What does the world see in us? Do they see a people who have already won the battle? Do they see a people of confidence and hope and joy and illumination? Is that apparent in our lives or do they see grumbling and complaining and whining and mourning and say, well, those Christians are no different than anybody else. Our faith, gang, our hope is about more than us. Our hope is about saving a lost world. For the more we walk in that secret, you know, the wonder of hope, the more joyful we are in all of this, the more people in the world see that and like those in Persia, want to become what we are. It's the greatest tool of evangelism you have. What is? Your attitude. Your heart. How you walk. Your smile. (laughs) Your unspoken faith will change more lives than any Bible bashing you could ever do. Light, joy, honor, hope. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, we're getting close, That is the month Adar. On the thirteenth day... Okay, we're not close, we're there. When the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. 
The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Remember that, Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. No one could stand before the Jews. They had gathered, they were prepared, they were a strong fighting machine. The name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, but you tell me, can you see how His mighty hand of providence is at work here? The tables are turned. The impossible has now just happened. Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, King Jehoshaphat cries out, Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. Verse 3, even as all the province, uh, princes of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and those who were doing the king's business, they even assisted the Jews because, again, the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. There's an awe, a respect for this Mordecai. No one had to be commanded, by the way, to honor Mordecai. They just did because of who he was, not because of some decree that said they had to fall down like they did with Haman. Verse 4, Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai became greater and greater. I love verse 5. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword. That phrase is literally with the stroke of the sword. I mean, there's a Lord of the Rings moment right there. They're just hacking, you know. Killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. But don't miss this. Verse 5 they struck their enemies with the stroke of the sword. How do, you, how do you deal with enemies of the cross of Christ? Strike them with the sword. Strike them with the stroke of the sword. Bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone was anti-Christian, you bring the gospel to them. You bring the sword of the word, the word that's truth, that is piercing, even to bone and marrow. The sword of the word, you bring it to them. And you let the chips fall where they may. But the most hardened people can be cut and divided and come to a faith by the power of the stroke of the sword, the gospel of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. The gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16 Verse 6 At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha, Dalphin, Aspatha, Paratha, Adaliah, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vizatha. Why are they named? Well, they are, verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy. There's something, by the way, you can't see here in verse 10, not in our English translations, something that the Jewish scribes in the ancient text took upon themselves to do. Every time a Jewish scribe came to Esther chapter 9, verse 10, and wrote those ten names of the ten sons of Haman, they write them in the shape of a gallows, which is kind of interesting. They would write out the names so that if you were to look at it on a page, it would look like a little hangman's noose, a little gallows there. Just thought I'd throw that out. I thought that was interesting. But the verse continues on. And it tells us for all of this, that for hanging the ten sons and for all the killing, they killed 500 there just in the capital alone. It tells us something interesting. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. And that's important. Because the Jews here are not in this for conquest. They are in it for self-defense. They don't want this battle. They're not taking it to the enemy to see what they can get out of them. To see if they can win a great battle. They're just defending themselves. 
They're just standing up for their right to be the people of God. It was not about plunder, it was about protection. And my friends, that had to speak volumes to those who were coming to faith, who were becoming Jews, to see that kind of honor worked out. They weren't going through and ravaging the homes of those that they fought against. If a man fell by the sword, that was it. It's interesting to me, I've said before, we are not here as Christians to win arguments. The point in defending our faith is not to humiliate critics of the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't fight for plunder. We're not trying to gain the upper edge. We're not trying to plunder the atheist or put down the agnostic. No, our whole focus is to win souls for Jesus Christ, not to win arguments. And there's a real difference in how we approach people when we're looking at their soul rather than at their words. You approach someone who's antagonistic toward your faith and you start to get antagonistic toward their stupidity because they can't... How dumb are you not to believe what I'm trying to tell you here? Wrong attitude. But if I come to that person looking at the heart and saying, at least in my own heart, my own spirit, this person needs Jesus. This person needs truth. This person right now is wearing a big, thick, heavy veil over their eyes. They can't see. They don't have the illumination. They don't have the hope. And that's the way we are to approach, not to plunder. Not to plunder. Verse 11. Well, on that day, the number of those who were killed at the citadel in Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman at the citadel in Susa. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? (laughs) What's going on here? Well, Xerxes is impressed. Now she's speaking his language. The language of bloodshed, conquest. All right, hey, your people are pretty tough. Um, now what's your petition? <laughs> it shall be granted to you. What's your further request? It shall be done. Xerxes is impressed by power. Well, then said Esther, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. Verse 14. So the king commanded that it should be done so. And an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also... Well, hang on a second. End of verse 14 there, and I just find this interesting. This sweet, gentle Esther, who is only concerned in protecting her people, now says, could we have one more day just to take a few more out? Why is she doing this? Esther, at this point, must have some intel that the enemies are not all gone that the fighting is still going on. And yet the edict runs out at midnight at the end of the day. Which means at that point, the Jews are no longer allowed to protect themselves anymore. And so she says, can you extend the edict? Can we add a day to this? At least here in the capital city. And so verse 15, the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month, Adar, and killed 300 men in Susa. So now we're up to 800 in the capital city. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now in the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, this is throughout all of Persia, they assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. You need to understand, the Jews were easily outnumbered in Persia. Still a minute people, as today, a minority people in Persia... And yet, they stood up and the power of God was with them, was behind them, and they lay out now 
what is it, 800 in the capital, another 75,000 throughout all the provinces of Persia. They stood victorious. We don't see the name of God. We don't hear His voice. But we see Him protecting His people. And we see Him bringing victory. It makes me think, I'm reading this and thinking about the Sajil missile today and and Iran and the Muslim world encroaching on tiny little postage stamp Israel in the vastly outnumbered Muslim world. And the question remains, why hasn't that greater Muslim world done what they've been threatening to do since 1948? That is to drive the Jews into the sea. Why haven't they just done it already? Stop talking and be done with it. Well... If you study the modern wars of Israel, the War of Independence 1948, the, the War of the Sinai uh, Conquest, Sinai Peninsula 1956, 1967 the Six Day War, 1973 the Yom Kippur War, 1982 the First Lebanon War. In each one of these, the Jewish people were outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned, with the exception maybe of the Lebanon War, where they were going in to stop the constant PLO terror attacks that were coming across the border. But in every one of the earlier wars mentioned, they were vastly outnumbered, vastly outgunned, vastly outmanned. And history is trying, people are trying to spin and change that, by the way. The Muslims are trying to say they didn't have the kind of equipment that the Israeli Defense Forces had. Man, I'll tell you what, read the book, O Jerusalem, if you want to know how difficult it was for the Jews just to try and defend Jerusalem in 1948. An incredible story. And they lost Jerusalem in that War of Independence, by the way. They won their state, but they lost the capital. They didn't regain that until 67. There's so much history, it's fascinating to me, but it's more than that, gang. No weapon formed against them can prosper. That's why they're still here. That's why the nation exists today. The continued providential protection of a righteous God. Not, let me assert, not the righteousness of the Jews. It's not their goodness that protects them. Any more than it's my goodness that saves me. It's not my righteousness that affords me the grace of God. It's His love. It's His mercy. And the same right now is extended to the Jews as God is being patient. There will come a day when they come to faith. I love this quote J. Vernon McGee said, The Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that's tried to exterminate it. <laughs> Psalm 17, verse 7, Wondrously. Show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And indeed the Lord has done so for Israel. He cares deeply for His people, the Jews, even in their current secular state, even though they have yet to accept Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ as Messiah. He still has a plan for the Jews. But it's an unformed, uninformed and arrogant and foolish nation that chooses to stand against Israel. May we never be that nation. Continuing on, verse 17. Well, this was all done. On the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of rejoicing and of feasting and rejoicing. But, verse 18, the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, that is, they fought on both of those days, And they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. What's going on here? Well, it's in the provinces outside the capital. 
their celebration, and the celebration is Purim, which the rest of the chapter details for us. The celebration of Purim outside of the capital was celebrated on the 14th. But inside the capital, they were still fighting on the 14th, so they celebrate Purim on the 15th. I wonder if there was any dissension over that. What do you mean you're celebrating on the 14th? We weren't even done fighting. You're already having a party? Come on, man. Well, 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 we're supposed to wait for you to finish up your job? We took care of our business. Your holiday, our holiday, and fighting over it. And, and I, I recall Paul's words saying, you know, one man regards one day above another, and another man, you know, another day above another. And let all who regard whatever day, just do so unto the Lord, will you? And people talk about Christmas, and there are those who are anti-Christmas, because, you know, the pagan symbols and all that's involved with it. And I understand that, and I will honor that for somebody. However, I kind of like our Christmas tree, and our packages, and our presents, and we honor Jesus in our house at that time. Let, let the holidays be. It's, it's, it's okay. And it doesn't say that they argued over it, but I, I, I kind of wonder that. Now, continuing on, verses 20 through 32, the rest of the chapter talks about Purim. We're going to save this until Sunday. Skip on down to chapter 10. Now, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. Hmm. That seems oddly out of place. We've just come out of this wonderful salvation of the Jewish people. You know, Mordecai lifted up to a place of prominence. Esther saved. The people saved. It's a wonderful time. Chapter 9 ends with the celebration of Purim. And now we come to chapter 10 and the first verse tells us about a tax that the king decides to lay on the people. And then you go on and, and it goes on to talk about Mordecai. And so it's, well, what is this doing here? It seems oddly out of place. Kind of irrelevant to the story. Somewhat extraneous. And this new tax, King Ahasuerus. Why is this mentioned here? Verse 2 goes on and says all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? Now, we cannot say this for sure. But it's been put forward, and a lot of the conservative Bible scholars are in agreement on this, that what verse 1 is indicating, and why it's here, and it's followed by verse 2, lauding the honor of Mordecai, is because Mordecai is the one who motivated, who encouraged Ahasuerus to lay in a tribute over the land. Mordecai said, you know what we ought to do? We ought to tax Persia. Well, why would Mordecai do that? Because Mordecai is a man of peace. Mordecai is, wants to bring in peace. He offers a new way for Ahasuerus to fund the Persian government. See, the old way was war, bloodshed, and plunder. Go wipe out a people and take everything they have and that way you grow your kingdom with glory and grandeur and riches and wealth. Just take out other people and and plunder them. Take from them. Rip them off. But instead of brutal plunder, apparently Mordecai recommends peaceful tribute. Hey, no one likes taxation. Can I get an amen on that? However, the reality is some taxation is good. I, I want our military funded. You know, I want our country protected. I'm willing to pay for that. You know, I'm willing to pay salaries of, of, of people in government if, well, 
I'm not so willing right now, but most of the time, you know, civil servants, jobs to be done, things that, that need to take place in our country, there, there's a reason, a legitimate reason for a certain amount of taxation. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But here we see a move to replace the Persian mindset of plunder with a more spiritual mindset of peace. You don't have to wipe someone else out to keep the government running. To, to keep even the grandeur, even the glory of Persia can be done through a different way, through tribute on the land and on the coastlands or literally the islands of the sea. You know, it's interesting... If you read through the book of Esther, it's interesting to note how it begins and it ends. The book ends with Mordecai ushering in peace. And I wonder why the book isn't called the book of Mordecai. Why would you wonder that? Well, it doesn't even begin with Esther. In fact, Mordecai is the first one mentioned. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 5, it says there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Mordecai enters the story before Esther does. And what's even more interesting is back in chapter 10, Esther's not even mentioned. She's out of the story. She's done her part. She's finished. But Mordecai is mentioned. Mordecai is elevated. Mordecai is honored. He, and throughout the book it's this way, Mordecai is the mover and the shaker. Mordecai is the motivator. For such a time as this, Esther, he's the one who tells her. Mordecai is the one who stands up to protect the king. Mordecai is the man. Esther plays her part and plays it beautifully. Passionately pleads for her people. But it's Mordecai who is the motivator. He's the mover. He's the shaker. He's incapable of these things himself, by the way. He, on his own, is just a little man. But by the power of God, Mordecai comes along, led by, I believe, the Spirit of God, the hand of providence. Mordecai, whose name also means grieved by oppression, is a type, again, of the Holy Spirit. And he is now the one who ushers in peace. What does the Holy Spirit do? But bring peace. He is the bringer of peace. Now watch this, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Don't miss how this wonderful book ends. Mordecai is second to the king. Mordecai seeks the good of his people, And Mordecai speaks for the welfare of his people. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. Places himself in secondary position to the king. He's not lower than. I've shared before, don't think of the Trinity as a triangle with Father up here and Son and then maybe Holy Spirit kind of down here as subservient to Father. No. Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit are all equal, all God. But they take different roles in the Godhead. They assume different positions, each one honoring the other two. And the role of the Holy Spirit, as we've talked about, is honoring and elevating Jesus. He takes the second position to King Jesus, in the same way Mordecai is in the second position to King Xerxes. And he seeks the good 
of His people. He seeks our good, the Holy Spirit does. He wants only the best for you, the best for me. He's not hoping to trip us up or make life difficult. He wants to lead us forward in our following after Jesus. And Mordecai, I love this, speaks for the welfare of his people. Is that not what the Spirit does? Interceding for us. Speaking to the Lord on our behalf. Romans 8.6 tells us the mindset on the flesh is death. Well, that's Haman. But the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And that's Mordecai's job. Romans 14.17 For the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Again tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And Paul writes in Ephesians 4.3 Therefore let us be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That concludes the book of Mordecai, the book of Esther. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, we have been privileged now in these last three books, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, to, to gain pictures of Your Spirit at work in us. Your Spirit working in our spirits, rebuilding and, and rejuvenating, literally renewing and restoring our spirits to eternal life. Just as the people went back under Ezra to restore the temple. And Father, we understand Your Spirit is our comforter surrounding us, hemming us in. Lord, encouraging us in the place of the soul, our mind, our intellect, our thinking. Encouraging us to think Your words and Your thoughts. As Paul said, we have the mind of Christ. And as we close Esther, we even recognize the work of Your Spirit, Father, physically among us, working to protect and lead us forward. And Father, I I don't think it's a stretch to say the the greatest example, the greatest proof of Your Holy Spirit among a people, among a church, among a fellowship, is unity and peace. Father, I pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace to reign true over the Bridge Christian Fellowship. I pray that we would not be a people dissentious in any way, shape, or form, but we will always be those looking for how we can love each other more, more joyfully share our fellowship together, and walk in the unity of Your Holy Spirit. Father, we praise You. We thank You for this time tonight. We thank You for these books. But we thank You more so, Father, for Jesus, who has become for us life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.